and the, podca- the podcast, the first half got cut off, but we're resuming, and this is episode four. My name is Zach Kopp, I'm your host, and the guests we have at present are Susan Coates, a sex and relationship coach, relationships and sex coach, Tyler J. Williams, a podcaster and a psychedelics advocate, Bethany Moore, an author and a witch, and Chris Barker, an old friend of mine from the 90s punk scene. And we've already sort of shot our, we've already sort of spent our load, (laughs) so to speak, not to say that other thing that I almost said but didn't, and I'm meanwhile trying to mess with this phone, so there's all these things happening here, Um, but, but, but Chris Barker, in the 90s, how was it for you at St. Mark's? It was no. I we you were we were speaking we were speaking earlier about uh, change and moving on, and I think that that's probably uh, um, in my personal Denver career. Uh, it's been kind of a difficult thing <laughs> to move on because it was Denver was a really amazing magical place in the '90s, and we, Zach and I have talked about this before. It's a magic time. Yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, Almost all of my great friendships I've made in my life, I mean, even after growing up in Denver and then moving away to go to college, and all my friends that I'm still in touch with now I met during that time period. And uh, a lot of that had to do with the place I worked. Um, just meeting every, seems like, interesting person in Denver swung through the uh, downtown St. Mark's where I worked, and then yeah. other places I moved to in Capitol Hill and worked in Capitol Hill in different places. It seems like that was a breeding ground for lots of There was a lot bands of communication between all the different genres of yeah. creativity in the 90s, all the musicians, comedians, writers, poets, they all used to hang out at St. Mark's downtown especially, and there used to be a number of independently owned coffee houses, including Cosmic Crossing where mm-hmm. I met Susan, another of our guests tonight, and um, we, were, we had a mutual friend, John Calhoun, who moved to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And were you in contact with him after Katrina? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got together. He was he was such a dedicated citizen of New Orleans after moving there, after living there only for maybe, I don't know how many, less than 10 years probably, Katrina hit and wiped out mm-hmm. known New Orleans. And he was a st- stalwart in, uh, he was a champion in raising money and care efforts for post-Katrina victims. Yeah. Yeah, he started a food co-op, mm-hmm. the first food co-op down there, and wow. it's super successful. And he also started the Good Night Show, yeah, the where Good he Night features show. local local politicians, local um, you know advocates. He he basically highlights the injustice happening in the town and brings people in who would normally not get featured anywhere else to speak out for those voices that are under. Amplified and uh, and he does it with style and grace and humor, a lot of humor. Like he brought a nun on recently, wow. and they were telling jokes, like nun jokes. I didn't even know <laughs> if it was still going. The Good Night Show. Oh That's yeah, so cool. That oh, is yeah. actually a big inspiration for what I'm trying to do here. Although I haven't reached out much to the underrepresented voices, but it crosses my mind. I passed one of those Denver Voice guys and thought about inviting him to the podcast, but I knew it was already going to be full of people. But in the future, I think I'll do more of that. I should probably ask John what his experience has been. Mm -hmm. Send him an email about it. Mm -hmm. 
So, Bethany, what do you have to add to the, what's your coffee house experience been like <laughs> in Denver since moving here? Uh, yeah, I moved here about six years ago and um, started going to the Mercury Cafe. They have the, the every Sunday, every Sunday night poetry, and I like that they have the uh, the jam before the slam with a little bit of jazz music beforehand, too, if you get there early. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I really like the open mic scene. Um, and uh, here at Mutiny as well, I've, I've done a few readings here as well, and um, I've also, I, I did one of my book launches here as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dig it. There's a lot of good poets here. There's a lot of good poetry, a lot of passion. Um, there's amazing poets that participate in the slam, which I don't, I, but they're going off to regional and national slam yeah, events. Yeah. They're they're amazing. I remember when the slam first came to Denver in 1994, and I didn't like it at all. I was like, poetry shouldn't be competitive. What do you mean? You're paying well, that, money? What the hell? That's why right. I don't do it, but, <laughs> but I but like to listen. I, eventually, they broke me, and I started doing it. And I and I was on the slam team even in 1994. I guess it showed up in 92, probably 92. And I was on the slam team with Devin and um, a couple people that aren't here anymore. John, what was that guy's name? Oh, there's Ben Porter Lewis and a guy named John Wright, I want to think. John Wright, I'm not sure. Um, those people aren't around anymore. Devin's still around, though. And the slam scene is still around. But I thought that it had sort of, like tanked, but I guess it was just me that lost interest in 1998 or something. I, w- I went at that pretty hard for about four years, just trying to, you know, find all the inspiration I could in that little format. I mean, scenes can ebb and flow. I mean, like, in the early 2000s, I was in Washington, D.C., and we're talking after 9-11, Bush is president. It, there were a lot of activists that were also creative and poets, and I was part of a group called Word of Mouth, mm-hmm. and they also had a, a an offshoot called Guerrilla Poets Insurgency, where they would go out to like Dupont Circle and just like shout political poetry. Um, I, I didn't do that as much, I, but I, I appreciated that. But man, that scene was so great, and uh, it was like really strong for a few years. But um, I don't know. Then then the times changed. Mm-hmm. I guess like some of us moved away or got got jobs or. Obama got elected president or something right. and just, just things shifted a little bit so um, it just changed but I wonder what, what's going on in D.C. right now like if the guerrilla oh, poets man. insurgency is like he's from D.C. it's another guest who didn't show up next time he could have answered your question <laughs> yeah um yeah, no, it's true. Scenes do ebb and flow. Like, I used to, because when I came to the Denver poetry scene, I changed my name to Henry Alarm Clock. I thought there are all these old people they are <laughs> all fixated on the beat generation. I'm going to shake things up and put some punk energy in here. And I and I did that for, like, ten years. And then I, and then I got over it. But um, I thought I was the only one who had ever been such a guy, like, in the Denver poetry scene. But now, like, Carson Reed, you know who that is? an old-time Denver Poet guy, and Ed Ward from the Mercury mm-hmm. have started a page on Facebook called The Scene, and they're showing fl- flyers and photographs of themselves as the young upstarts like 20 years before I met any of them. So it is that scenes ebb and flow, and there's never just one one glory scene. It's just kind of an endless an endless stream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's definitely some glory days, I feel like, some periods of like, Personalized, oh, man, this at least. is like the, the, 
cram, not cram or whatever, depending on like where you're at and mm-hmm. the height and yeah. stuff. Who's participating, and sometimes you get some really good synergies. I feel as an old man, though, I mean, I'm like middle, late middle age, I guess I'm not old yet, but I feel like totally shut out of the new Denver poetry scene, which is doing so much, and it's so happy about all the stuff that it's doing, and I can't help but just because of Facebook probably feel a little bit left out. I don't think they mean it that way, and I'm sure they'd like welcome me if I came to any of their readings, but it's just part of like maturing, you just lose your, you lose your primacy in whatever your chosen scene was. You know, as you move on to whatever your next thing is. Sometimes life happens, you just get busy. Always. (laughs) Just get a little busy. I noticed that being a sex and relationship coach, too, that, you know, I was sort of the town's unofficial sex teen sex coach when I was growing up because my dad was the town's sex therapist in a very conservative chemical company town in Michigan. And, um, And so, like, where was I going with that? Oh, scenes have been flown. Yeah, so, like, finally admitting that, you know, toward my dad, my dad's end of life, that I, yes, indeed, there were going to be two sex coaches in the family, you know, coming onto the scene more fully, I've noticed, like, wow, people are, the the subject matter has really changed, like, Mm -hmm. the themes have changed, the groups are changing, like, people are all into, like, ropes and shibari, and Hmm. the BDSM scene has just taken off, and there's just, yeah, it's sort of like slam poetry poets and just all the the newness right and in a way at 47 it's like i'm, I'm kind of wondering am i going to be able to keep up i can't relate to the yeah i mean uh, like i don't know uh, if i can do all of i don't know if i can keep up with all the rope ties you know and all those wonderful knot ties but but really like i'm still in it i don't <laughs> know people who are like fetishized in different ways but i've always just been like the I just naked bodies, you know. I don't naked need, bodies are I don't great. Need no ropes or rubber Those are great. Gear and, yes. But, um, <laughs> but I know people who are like really, especially into the rope tying deal. Mm-hmm. I know one person who like is all about that and posts pictures of her tied up and different configurations of knots and all that. I, and I don't naturally relate to any of it, but I guess as a sex coach, you, you are obligated to make a relationship to your clients. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had a client who wanted to be in a very normal Midwestern style relationship with Mm -hmm. someone, but he just didn't want penetration and he wanted to be tied up in saran wrap. And, and I was like, well, how's it going out in the dating world? And he's like, well, I'm finding a lot of women who really want a normal relationship. And then they think I'm a total freak. (laughs) And I said, well, what's your profile look like? And he said, well, it says I'm looking for a normal wonderful relationship and i said well you gotta include the saran wrap in there <laughs> that's true to put a point on it so what i mean by normal yeah it's totally okay to be a freak though totally yes absolutely like 95 percent of my work is de-shaming the the heck out of people's desire you know and what they really want yeah there's a lot of that uh, yeah just like internalized uh, shame for sure mm. yeah how about now? Oh, yeah, me personally? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, definitely yeah. working on it. Um, but, I mean, I, I think just, like, in general, you know, a lot mm. of people are, mm-hmm. um, you know, looking for that traditional relationship. And ah. uh, that kind of, that's just kind of what people are, are experiencing. And I think that more of that's 
being exposed, you know, like you're saying, there's a, there's a pretty big scene around it in Denver with some of the BDSM stuff and um, more, there's a more exposure right down the street. Actually. <laughs> pretty sure. Totally. There's a there's a lot of shops. Or not a BDSM <laughs> shop. I don't mean that. Just a Walgreens. <laughs> yeah, it is getting more normalized, which is great to see out in the world. Yeah, that it, that it can be more normalized, and you don't have to feel like a freak to walk into a shop and try out a flogger. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. want to seem like Mr. Conservative over here or anything. Just by saying, like, I'm, I'm just not, I'm just not that guy. But I'm not against it. Mm-hmm. Everything is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and vanilla is, has become another kink. <laughs> you know, I mean, really. Yeah. Well, it definitely just takes a lot of self-searching and maybe asking yourself what you want, and mm-hmm. then. <coughs> I, I'm very pro-therapy, by the way. <laughs> I think everybody should talk to a therapist, and it should be normalized. Uh, I think there's a meme around about how maybe older generations would whisper about, oh, I'm seeing a therapist. Mm-hmm. But now millennials are just like, oh, girl, Brand my therapist said this. you got to hear it. It's Absolutely. Really, yeah, they're, like, more excited to share. Absolutely, yeah. Because most of my clients come to me and they believe that they are a problem. Like, so much of it is embedded in shame around sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so, for for my clients, that's why so much of what I do is de-shaming. I'm basically saying, you're actually, you're not a problem. You know, it's what we have to do is uncover who we, what's underneath there that really wants to shake out here. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, like, in that sense, it's, it's like how to normalize that well we're all sexual beings we're all emotional beings we all need guidance and support you and know we live in an imperfect world yeah why why Things hold ourselves up. to this imperfect world standards when, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. absolutely liberation there's an entire world inside of us <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. oh and then trying to take the step to share that world with another human being um i'm 30 37 um, would like to be married, don't want children, um, but have never found that, and I keep trying. But people are just so complicated, and everyone's at a different place. Even if it would work at some time, you didn't meet them at that time, and they have more work to do, and it's just so very, mm-hmm. very complicated. Um, yeah. uh, and then once you do find that person, there's still a lot of work to be done, and People are realizing yeah, that too, of right? Easy. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it admit any of these complications? <laughs> just do the easy thing and make the connection. That's the happily ever after. I don't know if I connect with that person. I don't know if that person's on the same level. I don't mm-hmm. know. They would just like make the connection, see if it works, and then move on to the next. Well, I think so much of it no can become easy if we put on the table what's actually in service of our wholeness mm-hmm. and and what we're here for right so i think one of the biggest issues is people think they have to subscribe to the whole box Mm. right rather than saying well actually if form were to follow function you know like on university campuses they did this whole study where they said you know we always put the sidewalks in first and then the students walk their own path Mm. right and it's just this dirt path that actually becomes the way kids walk right so if relationship followed the function so the form followed the function of actually what is alive and what is in service of each person and the wholeness, 
of, of their sustainable life, then maybe relationship as we know it would be completely altered. It would be a whole, and and that is happening on some level. You know, we have people exploring, um, alternatives to, you know, normative, heteronormative monogamy, right? So it is starting to happen, but then we also have people saying it's the either or. I either have to be fully open and let my partner do anything, or we have to be totally closed and I have to get married and have kids, right? And it's like, well, no, I, what if you want to get married and not have kids? Or I what can if pick and choose? I can yeah, design my own life exactly. A bit. You don't have to mix finances. You don't have to be best. You could be best friends and live with a person and have a baby with them, and you don't have to be ongoing lovers. Like mm-hmm. I live with my undomest- un uncoupled domestic family partner. He's the dad of my child. Mm-hmm. We live in separate wings in the same house. It's a polycule. We don't have sex. Like. We have other partners. That's so okay. Cool. That's okay. That's and really it, cool. That's the best function we've ever had in the 10 years we've been in this evolution. So mm-hmm. my hope is that there's more room for that. Sure. Yeah. I feel like a lot of it is about, like, communication and that vulnerability. Like, I feel like it's hard to be vulnerable. A lot of the shame can get tied mm-hmm. up into just... Totally. Not even important relationship stuff, you know, and then like try to bring that in and work on it and you know there's a lot of work to be done and um just sometimes people aren't able to be totally vulnerable in the work that needs to be done and i think that's kind of one of the things that i have noticed as far as like difficulties in dating and whatnot yeah totally i think that's where what you said about therapy you know getting that vulnerable side to be normalized so you can start to get to know it and you know so it's not like so overwhelming to say what you feel right or what you need you know find the words to begin with I'm confused by shame I wonder what does shame have to do with the way you were brought up or is it something that is enforced societally yes yes because I had I had like no shame imposed on me as as growing up and I never had like a shameful concept of sexuality (laughs) imposed on me but then the older you get like you get older you don't have a girlfriend or a partner you will start to feel this societal pressure but is that shame or is it more like just hurry up and do what you're supposed to kind of pressure I'm just wondering about my I mean there must be shame somewhere in my relationship to emotion I'm just trying to understand what Mm -hmm. like how does shame emerge in among clients and what shame are you referring to when you acknowledge shame Um, unless it's too shameful (laughs) yeah I mean some of it is like I want this thing and I'm I'm worried that the world's going to think I'm crazy and Mm -hmm. then I say well you're not crazy the world's crazy for thinking that you shouldn't be able to have that thing (laughs) right Um, sometimes shame is yeah like I'm a bad person because I want this thing um Sometimes, yeah, it is family lineage. It's like, well, in my family, this is, I'm a bad person if I do this. If I go off the track of the box I was thought I was supposed to be in, hmm. uh, it comes from all over the place. It's sort of like, yeah, it, but it is it is the thing that says you, you are wrong. You're a bad person. I think of, like, my, my mother once... I once told my mother I didn't think I wanted to have children because the world was so screwed up and what a cruel thing to do to begin, begin a life in this screwed up place. And um, 
made her cry because she was looking forward to grandchildren. Mm. And I felt that, and I, like, have not forgotten it. But mm. is that shame, or is it just, like, I mean, it's just, like, a bad feeling. I don't know. Yeah. Is it holding you back from your life, or is it just a thing that happened? It depends on what you've decided say, it means to you, I think. Yeah, I, I can say my relationship with my mother is... I'm wanting to have done a better job as, like, a, a money-earning son, a more, like, properly put-together, money-earning, you know, successful son, is an ongoing thing with me. Like, I feel a guilt about that, but not a shame. But it might be a shame, I mean, because when your mother cries, it's like, wow, that's pretty shameful, <laughs> you know, but I, but I, but I feel like it... Um, I didn't like make her cry so much as she was ready to cry about something and it came up. I mean, I certainly didn't say maliciously that I'm not going to have any children. I was just sort of telling her, well, I don't think I'm going to have children, you know, but, um, but it like, it obviously had a different effect on her, her emotional body than I thought was an in play, you know. Mm. Um, so maybe that's my version of shame, like, living up to society's expectations of mm. capability, self-sufficiency, money earning. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's probably my shame. Mm -hmm. But I got a good podcast. And thanks for coming today. <laughs> thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. I think we've got, we've got about a half an hour left. I don't know if anyone's heart is in it to spend another 34 minutes. I mean, it might just kind of be a wash today, but sure. I'm glad you all came. And if anyone has anything more to add. I just love talking, so. Yeah, I'll stick around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Probably uh, got a few minutes to to yeah. go, but yeah, gonna getting a little hungry for sure. It's Me gonna too. Be dinner actually, time. Yeah. Gonna try to keep up on the healthy eating and healthy habits. Uh, Do you have an appointment already? An appointment for dinner. <laughs> I'm either gonna go to Karma or Senior Burritos after this. Uh, I've got some food. frozen Trader Joe's calling my name <laughs> in my freezer. With the freezer. Uh, yeah, I already went to my brother's bar, so oh, good Johnny Burger there. filled me up. That's Burger. Oh, and I should say we were talking about the Mercury Cafe, the. I think it's the 10th or 11th annual Neil Cassidy birthday bash is coming up on February 7th. I will be performing with Becca Mahalik, nice. and she doesn't want us. I wanted a band name. We're just going to use our own names, <laughs> Zach Kopp and Rebecca Mahalik, and we're going to play for about 15 or 20 minutes um, some spontaneous poetry accompanied by her on saxophone. And it's going to be great if anyone's available on the 7th. It's going to be a hot time. David Amram's jazz quintet's going to be there. John Allen Cassidy is going to come to Denver for what I think is the very first time Neil's son with oh, wow. uh, Carolyn. Yeah. And my friend Bob Hyatt, another son of Neil's, is also going to be there. And it's going to be a good time for all. Sweet. On the 7th of February at the Mercury Cafe. Don't miss it. What time? 7 o'clock, I think it begins. Pretty nice. sure. It might be 7.30. Look for it on Facebook, though. Cool. Nice. Love those Facebook events. Mm -hmm. Super handy. <laughs> well, yeah, everything's so handy with Facebook, and it's probably a terrible thing, right? <laughs> it's probably just a bad, bad thing, but I'm still going along with it. No shame. They, uh, they have like a Facebook <laughs> light now that you can put on your phone. It's sort it's of like GPS, you know? You don't look around for what's happening anymore. You just check your Facebook events. Oh, not there. Nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. I, I cut you off, though, Tyler. That's what was cool. the last thing you said? Um, what was the last thing I said? Something about the phone. 
Facebook Lite. Oh yeah, Facebook Lite. So it's just it's not like the full Facebook. You can't do like all of the same things. I'm not really sure. It doesn't do as many like push notifications and that mm. sort of thing. So that's a just self care thing for a lot stuff. of people. I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. Messenger Lite too. Same thing. No notifications. Mm. That's an actual thing. Yep. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I guess you can you can deactivate your profile but still receive messages through Messenger. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the new social media is like TikTok. Have you guys heard about this? TikTok? No. It's like, I guess, bigger than Facebook right now. Uh, bigger than Instagram, bigger than oh Snapchat. Oh, boy, it's better like get on top of that. <laughs> I didn't know that. A lot of uh, musicians and stuff are using it. It's kind of a like short video format, so I think it's similar to like, Snapchat in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, one of my first guests that I had on was like, you've got to get on TikTok. This is like, it'll blow up your podcast way faster. Wow. So, uh, well, that's good to know. TikTok. Well, any other burning desires back there to talk about? I'd love to hear a little bit about, like, witchcraft. Or <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, in, in our failed recording segment, we talked a little bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I know. Yeah, what a trick. Um, I'm, I'm so sure you've met somebody who is like, oh, I'm Wiccan, or I'm into crystals or astrology, or one of those is probably a good place to start. Um, I've been practicing since I was about 12, kind of weird kid, oh, cool. got into it, studied under um, some some pagans in a very formal way when I was a teenager throughout high school. My parents had to sign a waiver to let me what? study with this state-ordained pagan group in Maryland. Um went on after high school uh, found a women's circle just and I've just continued and I also host rituals with with my people um, from time to time as well usually like my birthday or winter solstice or Halloween or something um, and for me it's a it's a way to be reconnected with nature um, both like literally nature around us but also the cycles in, inside of us and how we relate to it so it's as much of an inner journey for me as it is a shared community practice um, yeah I've, I, I've embraced it fully I, I use the word witch which not all people on this path do but I do um, and I have gone full in on all my poetry and writing in it being a really strong theme for everything I'm publishing. Nice. Uh, so nice. I'm all in. <laughs> um, nice. And, you know, at, at age 37, I said I got into it at 12. There's There's been a couple times where I've questioned, like, you know, what are you doing? Is this really, like, the path you want? Or, like, maybe just didn't pick it up as much. But I always come back to it, and it gets, I'd like to say, it kind of gets a little bit stronger every time or more more solid part of who I am and um, yeah I'm glad it's becoming more um, um, uh, popular Uh, a lot of women are drawn to it because it does allow them to have um, like a feminine deity a goddess as part of their spiritual practice and it doesn't have as much structure as maybe a patriarchal Judeo-Christian kind of path. No kneeling, sitting, standing. I mean, (laughs) we do different things. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I just really enjoy it. And there's there's lots of resources I can point point you to if you want to learn more, but um, yeah, I I enjoy it. And I think most people that know me know know that about me too. (laughs) 
Do you have a website of your own or a website to recommend for witchcraft knowledge? Um, there's there's a lot of great authors out there I could definitely recommend. I mean, um, if you're into if, if if you want to start with Celtic magic, Scott Cunningham is a great author. Um, if you want a little bit more of a uh, fun approach, there's like Silver Ravenwolf. <laughs> um, some real background would be uh, Starhawk and Margot Adler. Um, I've, I met Margot Adler many years ago before she passed away. Um, so those authors are, um, I would probably start with Starhawk and Margot Adler mm -hmm. authors for sure. Alright. I studied like a little bit of that when I was first starting to kind of question my own spirituality, like public middle school. Yeah. Um, but it was really fascinating. I just, uh, yeah, I, I felt like it would be kind of hard to practice in my very conservative mm -hmm. <laughs> family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I enjoy studying lots of different religions and philosophies for sure. And what, what I like about my practice is I feel like I can make it eclectic and I can make it my own and I don't have to follow any rigid structure. Um, so I think it, it can allow for a lot of personalization. Nice. Yeah. Mm. There's structure out there. Um, you you know. kind of pick and choose and, yep. what you follow. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I've heard of a guy named Gerald Sanders. Is that his name? Who is like an early proponent of Wiccanism. Gerald Buckland? Buckland, yes. Yeah, he has the, the, the which is the Complete Guide to Witchcraft or something. Yeah, it's like it. a big was, blue book, yeah. Was he the, was, how old is Wiccanism or Wiccan? Okay, right, yes, we're talking, yeah, we gotta go back to like, I don't know, late 1800s right, or something. There's, there's a bunch of people in England and they're reviving the old ways and they're rewriting this like neo-paganism and you know, finding old writings and trying to revive it in a way that makes sense. So, you know, so effect, it effectively root, it's evolved. Root in like old medieval, medieval root or older even. Or, or older. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, when you look at a lot of non-Judeo-Christian um, from all over the world, whether it's Ireland or um, Germany or Italy um, or even um, some... Native American practices, you're you're gonna you're gonna find themes, like of, Easter, like of nature, like being part of the wheel of the year, celebrating. Whoops, celebrating the wheel of the year. I was making a large oh, circular okay. thing and I hit the microphone. <laughs> um, celebrating the wheel of the year and just being part of nature's natural cycles instead of uh, <laughs> um, the. The, the Christianity, the Judeo-Christian trifecta of this different storyline. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of the best way I can bring I it see down it, right I now. see it sort of like the path. Who was talking about making a path? It was you, wasn't it? Where you, you either let you either impose a path and the mm -hmm. kids walk the other way, or you let see where they walk and then make a path where mm -hmm. they're already walking. Mm. Kind of the same idea of following the cycles of nature rather than imposing the calendar that's specific to your religion rather than mm. following what the earth is doing. Sure. Yeah, it just felt right to me when I found it. Um, it, it just resonated. So I think, you know, whatever whatever path anyone chooses, if right. it resonates and if it feels good and if it feels like home, go for it. 
So you can always change your mind too. Like, why not? You're not just because you say like, "Oh, I'm a Buddhist now," and then you change your mind ten years later. That's okay. Do you feel like <laughs> uniting um, your writing path with your witchcraft path is a benefit or a detriment? Does it open more doors, or do you feel more opposition? Well, that is a very interesting question. Um, I remember. It reminds me of a few years ago I met with a, um, a former colleague much older than me from a job I had many years ago. I worked at Americans United for Separation of Church and State in the 2000s before Obama got elected. It was a two-year campaign called the First Freedom First Campaign. Um, and so I worked with a communications guy named Rob Boston. Fast forward to a couple years ago, um, he was coming through Denver and was like, let's get tea. And I picked his brain. I hate that phrase, pick your brain. But, um, you know, he gave me some advice um, on publishing, which he had done. And one thing he told me was to not be afraid of going super niche and to not try to write to please everybody. Um, you'll be better if you just embrace, like, that super nerdy or a super specific thing that you're passionate about mm -hmm. and, and don't try to water it down. Um, so that really clicked for me and you know, pretty much all my poetry in one way, shape or form weaves in themes of nature, spirituality, ritual, alchemy, witchcraft, things like that. Um, religious symbolism in some cases. And I was like, all right, here we go. I'm, I'm just gonna go ahead and make that my path of uh, this forward. And what was great is it inspired not just, you know, the poetry that most of it I'd already written or just continued on the theme, but then I wrote that fairy tale short story mm -hmm. that I'm super proud of. <laughs> Never thought I'd write a, um, a fairy tale, but um, I got to write one. The muse gave it to me one cold winter night, Excellent. and uh, the main character is a witch, and I weave in a lot of real witchcraft into the story as well as fantasy. Are you aware of the different fairy books like the yellow fairy book, the red fairy book, the blue fairy book, green, etc., etc.? They're compilations of ancient or old, very old fairy tales, um, very well written and well elaborated, sort of archi archivized, mm -hmm. archived from um, ancient texts. I don't want to keep saying ancient. I don't know how old they are. Oh, but fa like fairy tales are fairy really tales. old. <laughs> And they used um, to be really dark, too, European, before some, yeah. some Eastern European, maybe a little bit of Asian. I haven't seen the whole series, but um, it's... Oh, I think the guy's name is Andrew Norton, who's the anthologist. Mm -hmm. But look for the yellow fairy book, the orange fairy book, just color fairy cool. book, and you'll find a whole library. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that your muse is primarily autobiographical or creative? Other I'll fixated. never tell. <laughs> no, it's very autobiographical. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's how I process. Do you that that's a limit, or is it just kind of a native, native habit? Um, some, sometimes it feels limiting um, because I am stuck in my own first-person perspective mm -hmm. of what I'm expressing, and I don't really step into other character roles outside of myself, so it is limiting, but it's where I'm most comfortable at this point. I'd say it's very satisfying when you can write something, write about something that's happening to you and really understand it and diagram it out and deduce it and turn it into a piece of art. 
it's very satisfying, but when you read back that stuff compared to the stuff you wrote that was purely imaginative, it seems like a more difficult and more labored of a process to read and write the autobiographical stuff. That's the thing I've been going through. I'm just wondering if it's going to stick to any of my listeners here, get mm. any response from anybody. But I'm finding that um, creative stuff, the, the pure fiction stuff, is a lot easier to create and feel like you're doing a good job at creating, where um, autobi autobiography is more like a laborious process of getting everything correct so you know where you stand and make sure that you're standing in the right place for yourself. Mm. And also more concerned about the impression you're making on your readers who are going to know that it's your fictionalized self, like your true self. Um, and that just might be my own trip, but I'm finding that fiction is a lot easier to write and sort of more enjoyable mm. to create. I can see that. Artistic-wise, art-wise. Do you write at all yourself, Tyler? Um, I've been told I'm a good writer, but uh, I, I, I'm a perfectionist, so like it's really hard for me to like be like this is done. I, I definitely identify with that, like what you're talking about with autobiography. What's your usual route? Oh man, um, I've done a little bit of both. I don't think I've published anything other than like some technical stuff, like that. Uh, we're talking a little bit about the uh, decriminalizing. Uh, mushrooms earlier, I wrote like the, the original ballot initiative for that um, but other than that kind of stuff and like Facebook posts, you know, I don't really publish a whole lot <laughs> mm -hmm. Alright, well we've got 18 minutes here and we've all got an opinion about cannabis <laughs> so let's talk about cannabis I know Bethany is an activist in the legalization arena Tyler's Tyler's a fan and he's he's more done the psychedelics aspect, but he also, he mentioned writing about cannabis, or the teacher not letting him write about the legalization of cannabis. It's so funny you mentioned that. I don't know where you Every stand. Every speech class I ever I don't took know where in you, college. Well, I kind of know where you stand. <laughs> was the first thing. The you were like, okay, the topics are anything but the legalization of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's like, and half the kids in class like, oh, ready? Okay. I have to go look up something in the I newspaper. I would always, just like, after class go, be like, well, and then start like laying out some of my points and stuff, and just be like, "This is gonna be very just professional, like, right, just, legit." Just, just like, let me do it. <laughs> and then like the class speeches would come up, and they'd be like, "Like all the other kids would be like, how he gets to talk about it?" <laughs> oh, so you were eventually allowed to do a speech on the legalization of cannabis? Yeah, pretty much Good every in college persuasive. Or in uh, I mean, starting in middle school, we wow, had uh, like you. a debate class and uh, they were like, does anybody want to do like a uh, debate topic? And I was like, let's do legalization campus. Wow. <laughs> so did you start that young? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I started in middle school, uh, somewhere between 7th and 8th grade when I started mm -hmm. smoking and uh, I took two years off in high school because I was in, in trouble and I don't have to do it. But, uh, <laughs> I got high for the first time at age 11, same time, wow, nice. same time frame, and then I didn't do it again until freshman year of high school. And then I met the kids in high school who smoked pot, and it was like a group for me to fall into, and that became my group. Nice. And I've just been um, pretty much a career pot smoker since high school. I actually really didn't get into regular cannabis smoking until my freshman year of college, and it was more out of um, stress and self-care than it was, rec uh, you know, recreational friendly mm -hmm. use. Um, so, yeah, for the last... 
almost 20 years, it's, it's been, um, self, self-medicating for me actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and not a lot of my friends smoked cannabis actually. Uh, so it was kind of hard to find people to hang out with anyway, if I did want to. Mm-hmm. So a lot of sitting at home smoking in my room by myself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that's given you a different kind of a relationship? Because I, too, spent a lot of time smoking pot by myself. And I, and I don't really go in for the ha-ha, like, munchy kind of vibe. Of right. I just want to feel people better. People hanging out together laughing. The drum circle vibe. <laughs> I feel like it's a much more serious, important deal for me just mm-hmm. because it's become so personalized. Yeah. Everyone uses it a little bit differently. But, yeah, that's, that's my journey. And uh, I became a medical marijuana activist in the early 2000s in the D.C. area, I want to say 2003 or 2004, and uh, had to, like, hide it from my employers, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but now <coughs> now I've got a full-time job representing the industry, which right. is something I never thought would happen. Mm. Yeah, and that's pretty recent, like, that happened in 2014, am I right? Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, there I was, the outlaw all his life, and then, like, here I am in the city where it's legal, and I, I'm, like, not a criminal anymore. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so I just turn all my attention to art and, like, try to become a criminal of art, <laughs> a criminal of creativity instead. Of nice. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> what about you, Susan? Do you have a yeah. cannabis experience? Uh, well, I'll just say, you know, as the daughter of, of an addict who did heroin and alcohol and started drinking it from the time you know he was seven so he he became a person through addiction Mm -hmm. so being the daughter of one of the toughest nuts to ever get cracked frankly around sobriety (laughs) and growing up with that I I think that I I made a very early decision that I would really um take take a real observer's approach and also an impact from an impact perspective approach and really like see how that felt like what's my relationship to this thing um and you know I didn't want to see those cycles repeat but unfortunately I did see those cycles repeat with my father um and then for myself I didn't even do anything until I was in my 20s I was holding my girlfriend's hair back while they were partying I was the designated driver and and then in my 30s I I um I went in deep with a a group of people we did this form called contact improvisation which is shared weight through space between two or more bodies and we created this thing and it grew and now it's like over a thousand people and people are having babies and taking care of each other it's like a big community but when we were getting going we became like really deep with each other we became kin and so we started exploring um through medicinal journeys and I think like cannabis hasn't really been a big part of that for me um so for me a lot of it is like what what am I preparing to live or am I preparing to die through the substance first of all right Mm -hmm. is it is it helping me prepare to die numb out right whatever or is it helping me prepare to live and if so if preparing to live what door what door am I opening what am I exploring here and so my entry point into medicinals became one of transformation. Mm-hmm. So that, that was my way, you know, that was my way. That was my only way, right, I, for me. I love that approach. As, a, as a young person, die? a child of an addict, it was like, well, either I prepare to die through a substance or I prepare to live. And, and as a sex and relationship coach and a transformation, you know, 
yeah, junkie, <laughs> as junkie of transformation, uh, yeah. right? Not not junkie, actually. I even Change call junkies. bullshit on over-transformation, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm steeped in transformational community, and I think that sometimes there's an excess even there uh, with just acceptance, you know, of what is. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I guess for me, my excitement around marijuana has really been... Um, I tried pot chocolate for the first time at Burning Man, nice. and then I proceeded to have like a six-hour orgasm. All right. Didn't realize that was possible. Yeah, so was I guess edible. transformation. It was great way wow. more transformational than I ever fathomed. Yeah. I didn't know I could have a six-hour orgasm from kissing someone and yeah, to exploring like to other things. But. All the things that I had done up to that point really prepared prepared my journey to be really attuned, I think. And so when yeah. I did the substance, it was like total ignition. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's my experience with, with pot. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Long story short. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, Chris? Uh, you don't have I, to be I advocate. never... Uh, you can be against it or whatever. No, no, I, uh, <laughs> it, my, my relationship has been fairly recent, so, um, when I was growing up, it was very difficult to come by. It was easier to come by Coke and LSD and mushrooms than it was, li- I live in a little t- ski town, mm-hmm. so cocaine was everywhere, and, mm-hmm. uh, psychedelics were everywhere, and the weed that we got smelled like gasoline, because it was, like, smuggled in the gasoline Whoa. tank of someone's truck, and it was brickweed, and it was Whoa. horrible. So... I really never, I, it wasn't until really recently that I, on a regular basis, started with edibles. But, um, yeah, every, the other things were really easy to come by. And so that's what my recreational uh, use was up until <coughs> really recently. I kind of actually had, like, kind of a bad view of it because it was, you know, it was bad stuff, you know, and it was it was really, really hard to come by, too, you know. Now it's regulated. And now it's like, yeah. now you have your 75-year-old mom asking you to run down to the dispensary and get her some <laughs> a tincture of oil to stick underneath her tongue for to, so she can sleep, you know. Mm. And it was like, you know, it's a totally different experience. Um, I have a 12-year-old son, and it's going to be really interesting to see his relationship with drugs than it was with mine because my relationship was you know this was illegal and you can go to jail and get in a lot of trouble mm. get in a lot of trouble at well, a young age like, oh, it's something mm. the adults and now it's doing yeah and now he's you know got kids vaping on the playground things like that mm. you know, we used to have to like sneak right. my friends I didn't smoke when I was in high school but you know your friends had to like mm. go out to the car and sneak or you had to be in your dorm room and do the whole like mm. you know blowing through a tube with a downy thing <laughs> <in it. laughs> yeah, and putting a wet rag underneath this, the Thing and you're, I'm sitting there going like, what's going, what's going? You know, now he's got friends vaping. Literally at 12 years old, he's got classmates vaping. Oh yeah, vaping. it's like that's wow. no, that's nothing. You know? So um, it's just gonna be an interesting trend. It's just gonna be an interesting to see how that pans out. <laughs> yeah. With that, it's gonna be a different relationship. There's not gonna be that fear factor that there was when I was growing up. Mm. We definitely had a fear factor of drugs when I was growing up, and mm. I think that's mm-hmm. for good. There's a good there's a good uh, aspect of that, and there's also a, you know, there's going to be a boundary aspect set, a self-boundary or some other boundary besides the law that's going to have to be set to put mm. some, like, 
okay mm -hmm. man like we need to put some you don't have <laughs> you don't have these consequences but there are consequences and mm -hmm. they might have to be something different mm -hmm. to put some parameters on the action going on <laughs> for sure so real drug education goes a long way rather than just scare mm -hmm. tactics yes mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. that's going to yeah. be that's perfectly putting it actually yeah Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of my friends now have children who are about 12 or older, and I have not had any children yet. And that would put a whole different, um, a whole different perspective in play as far as legalization of drugs. Or, I mean, the, the idea of a kid smoking pot on the playground at 12, in my memory, would have been like really shocking if that had happened. It would have been illegal then. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, they did smoke cigarettes probably. That was legal. <clears throat> and I don't know if that was a good thing either. That wasn't a good thing either. <laughs> but I don't know. It just puts a whole whole mm -hmm. different perspective on it when you think about it as a parent, perspective parent anyway. Just a different way. I think what Bethany put it perfectly. It's just you don't use the scare tactic anymore. Now you have to educate, mm -hmm. which means more conversations and being more aware. My parents weren't aware of anything that was going they were so head in, they had their heads in the sand, and I definitely don't. So, um, hopefully, I'm an easier person to talk to than my father was by anything like that because <laughs> it was a quite different story. In a way, I miss the vagueness and the swirliness of things when everything was illegal because art and creativity was this unknown landscape, and everything was sort of fantastic and impossible. Now everything is becoming very realized and stratified, and things everything is legal, and there's just like a more realistic perspective to more realistic a, approach to all these things that used to be formless and you know mysterious. And I think it's probably a good thing. I'm still I'm still the I'm still the artist guy. I'm still not very like programmatic in my approach to most things, but um, I'm hoping it's a trend for the better a change in the direction of um, conscientious stewardship of our reality, and how can that be bad? Well, the good news is there's still hundreds of research chemicals uh, that are out there of just, uh, you know, psychedelic still drugs, more psychoactive drugs that uh, yeah. <laughs> aren't well documented. And, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, even with the ones well, that we good. have, you know, like they just found that uh, CBDP and the THCP that's apparently... I heard like, about that. 20 times more potent than regular CBD and THC. Uh, so, yeah, kind of interested to learn more about that. And, and I had heard that CBD was always non-psychoactive, but I guess maybe that's changing. Yeah, I think uh, it's like anti-psychoactive, actually. Mm. Like, uh, uh, what do they call it? Anxiolytic yeah. helps with, like, anxiety and uh, bringing people to kind of back down. Mm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the munchies, <laughs> no, I know. I'm ready for <laughs> well, let's see. It. Does anyone have a, any closing words? If not, I'll just cue up the music. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. Sorry you I had really technical difficulties earlier. I guess I had uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I've right. been asking about a couple of things, um, and so I thought. Like as soon as I, I mentioned just some stuff, and you're like, "Oh, I'll totally ask you about that." And so I, I, there's just one thing, I was really uh, a little nervous to talk about, but um, I don't know if you, have you guys ever heard of like targeted individuals? Oh yeah, we were gonna, you were interested in that, yeah, gang stalking, right? Uh, well, yeah. So 
a lot of people talk about uh, like gang stalking and stuff too. Uh, like right there with it, with like uh, you know groups of people kind of targeting individuals mm. and um, doing activities. And I'm I'm still like learning. I just learned about this. So, um, it's something. That it's I'm a fringe topic. Some people don't admit that it exists or believe that it exists. And I personally, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm totally. curious about the whole thing. Uh, well, I feel like I've had some experience with it. And so, like when I've started learning about it, it was, it was like really interesting to be like, okay, well, like you know, here's this whole thing of like what I thought was kind of like very out there, you know, mental health kind of topics mm-hmm. or whatever that I would be talking about. But uh, you know, it seems. I guess it's still kind of, just learning from it, it seems like it's still kind of in that realm. It of kind of is, but it does make sense that they would keep track of certain individuals as a representative of a greater demographic, perhaps. If we admit the existence of a secret government, then we can say, okay, that makes sense, targeted individuals. A lot of people aren't ready to admit that, though. Yeah, totally, totally. And, uh, you know, lots of different factions, too, of, like, the... Um, secret governments and, and that kind of stuff and I um, yeah I guess you know one of the one of the things that they say with targeted individuals is that they, they have the technology to basically like read your mind uh, remotely Uh-oh. and um, interact with the stuff going on in, in your head and um, they don't shut down my podcast <laughs> this oh might this might lower the damn it they're <laughs> listening to us now aren't they well hopefully this ceiling we've got some sound protection that'll keep <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just—it's definitely one of those huge <coughs> topics. I guess I just was uh, curious to bring a little bit more. Uh, well, if you can tell me a little of your experience in the next two minutes, or just Sounds a little like a snapshot, whole to be it does, oh, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, Maybe you should come back for another episode. I would love. I don't to know come unless back you got like a quick. I got one minute left. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, so All right, thanks for coming, Bethany. Uh, Enjoy your quick. fish sticks, is that what you said? I don't remember what you said. Enjoy your dinner, <laughs> though. Frozen something. Stouffer's. Uh, right? But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, have you ever seen The Truman Show? No, I have seen The Truman Show. Yeah, that's totally stock uh, targeted. <laughs> he was targeted. Straight up targeted. This whole world. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. It's just, um, you know, maybe kind of in that vein, I suppose. So All right. Well, thank you. That's an interesting topic. Is there a website on the sub- on the subject that you uh, have to recommend? Not that I've found. I've just been watching a lot of YouTube videos. And Do a um, search on targeted individuals. Yeah, yeah. And like it might city be interesting. Too. You can um, find like, some meetups and stuff if it is something that you can identify with. Uh, oh, meetups. Get out and meet up with some people, yeah. All right. Susan, thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. I hope me. you had a good time. It was I'm good to see you, too. I'm going to second here. All right. Chris, thanks for coming. Neil, thanks for engineering for us. And sorry for the late notice. Thanks for coming, everybody. We'll be back again in about another month. Good night.